0: Jason Crawford is the founder of The Roots of Progress, a nonprofit dedicated to establishing a new philosophy of progress for the 21st century. He writes and speaks about the history of philosophy of progress, especially in technology and industry. He's also the creator of Progress Studies for Young Scholars, an online learning program about the history of technology for high schoolers, and a part-time technical consultant and advisor to Our World in Data. Formerly, he was a software engineering manager and tech startup founder. He was co-founder and CEO of Fieldbook, a hybrid spreadsheet database. He's also been an engineering manager at Flexport, Amazon, and Groupon, and was at a few other startups as co-founder or early employee. Long ago, he helped build a biotech supercomputer for D.E. Shaw Research. Today, we spoke about optimism, progress in technology, drivers of stagnation, and how to think about innovation. Hope you enjoy. So, yeah, listen, I appreciate you doing this. It's uh, great to get the chance to chat and everything. Oh, geez. Where to start? Okay, so I think that just to set the stage a little bit here before we dive into everything you're doing at Roots of Progress and sort of the meat of of the, the podcast, I'd love to hear just a little bit about the backstory, right? How did you get interested in this field and studying progress? What was the path up to this point? How'd you get here?
1: Backstory, how I got here. Yeah. I got interested in progress over five years ago. That's when I started this this project to understand the history of human progress and and soon after started this blog, The Roots of Progress. And there are a lot of reasons why I got interested in it. But the, the sort of central thing was just realizing how foundational the history of progress was to my overall worldview. When I thought about what do I care about and what matters to me like things like reason and science and technology and industry and capitalism and economic freedom and a, a whole host of things you might broadly think of as kind of you know the values of the enlightenment. When I ask myself, why do I care about those things and, and why do I care how they're sort of seen in the world and whether they, whether they continue, a lot of it came back to having this keen appreciation for how far we've come, how terrible life used to be just 100 or 200 years ago, how much we have incredibly increased living standards for so many people. And, you know, looking at that and thinking, wow, that is actually one of the greatest things that has ever happened to humanity in all of history. It's an amazing story. And if you you really care about human life, I think you have to look at that with a little bit of awe and, and wonder. And you have to ask, wow, where did that come from? why did it take so long? Why did we have basically no growth in like GDP per capita for for, for almost all of human history until just a couple hundred years ago? And how can we keep it going, Can this kind of growth and advancement and progress continue into the future? And if so, what is needed for that to happen? And what could slow it down or stop it or even reverse it? And so I think those are like really fundamental questions that there should be more attention to. And so I said, all right, I'm just going to start learning about it and understanding what you know where all this progress came from but before i try to ask you know the big questions like why did progress happen i need to understand something much more basic which is what progress did happen like what, when we talk about progress what does that actually mean concretely what does it consist of and i realized that as much as i admired let's say the industrial revolution I had only a very high level and fuzzy understanding of what that even was and what it consisted of. I had some notion that steam engines were involved and trains and coal and cotton and and some things like that. But, you know, but, but what was it really? Why was it such a big deal? Why was it apparently so difficult to create that it waited for most of human history? And and just what were the what were the specific advances, right? Like what what was the deal with steel and iron? Like like why are these metals difficult to create what do they actually take what were the what was this thing called the Bessemer process anyway that's supposedly a big deal but i had no idea what it was you know i didn't even know when i started this progress I, this 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 project i didn't even know the difference between char- uh, coal and charcoal <laughs> you know i didn't know the difference between cement and concrete and so there was just a whole lot of like very basic ground level understanding to get and i decided to go very bottom up and start with the object level stories of yeah what how did we create better forms of cement? How did we create cheaper steel? How did we invent the steam engine? How 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 did we build railroads? For that matter, how did we, you know, figure out the germ theory and, you know, create better sanitation and reduce infectious disease? So all of the different things where we're applying our intelligence to improve living standards. I just started reading all of those stories. And that's that was the origin of this project.
0: Awesome. So before I ask you what the difference between coal and charcoal actually is, I think another good question to ask would be this question of optimism. And you talk about this a lot and there's like an important demarcation here, right? Like you talk about descriptive versus prescriptive optimism and you very much fall into one of these camps, you know, maybe sometimes the other, but just to set the stage, could you, could you talk a little bit about that for you know the rest of the conversation.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm sometimes called an optimist and sometimes the progress studies movement is referred to as as, you know, a movement of optimists or an optimistic movement. But the more I I think about that term and think in detail about what it refers to, the more I think there are many different types of optimism and it's very important to know which one you're talking about because I don't necessarily think we should be optimistic in every, in every different way that that term is is used. In fact, I've gotten away from the term a bit, but But yeah, so I made this distinction in one brief essay on descriptive versus prescriptive optimism. I think these are two key ways you can think about the term. So descriptive optimism is sort of a prediction about the future. It says that essentially we're on the right track, things are going well, we're not facing any major difficult problems, or if we are, they will be, you know, they will be easily solved. The future is bright. You know, a kind of like I expecting good things in the future. There's that kind of kind of optimism, and. You know, the 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 issue with that is it's not always true, right? So so sometimes things are going well and sometimes they're not. In some areas things are going well, in some they're not. And so I think descriptive optimism is very contingent on the particular facts of a situation, right? And so it's problematic if you adopt descriptive optimism as sort of a personal identity or worldview. It's just too contingent for that, right? And if you do that, then you end up just being uh, having a sort of Pollyanna-ish sort of outlook on the world, where you just you see the whole world through rose-colored glasses, and you can't see any problems. And that's just not realistic. And because it's not realistic, it's not helpful. In fact, it can be quite dangerous if you are oblivious to problems that that actually exist out there. Um, but prescriptive optimism is about what we should do, and it's about how we should approach the world, including any problems or challenges or risks that it might have. Prescriptive optimism is, is one of action, is one of choice, is one of, you know, it says look no matter how how good or how bad things are are looking we can do something about it we should do something about it we should put forth our best and greatest efforts we should work hard we should be ambitious and we should believe that we can make a difference and so it's the opposite of defeatism or fatalism and so so i mean a great example of the contrast between these two so i wrote an editorial for MIT tech review where i contrasted these two and in particular i told the story of the, the time that the world almost ran out of fertilizer, which was around the late 1800s, there was this president of the British Society, British Society of, sorry, a Scientific Association, William Crookes, who was a famous physicist in his own right, but warned the world that we were running out of fertilizer, which turns out we, you know, we actually were. We were using up all the known sources of natural fertilizer. And at that point, there was not yet any synthetic fertilizer. Now, you know, he was called alarmist for that, right? And you might consider that kind of a prediction to be a pessimistic one. And it was descriptively pessimistic. He said we are heading for a very bad problem and possibly, you know, but he was very prescriptively optimistic because he said that what we need to do here, so so if he had been doing this at the end of the 1900s instead of the end of the 1800s, he might have been the type of person who says the solution is we all need to eat less, you know, roll back our resources, reduce economic growth, reduce population, etc., right? He might have been a a population bomb type, you know, like Paul Ehrlich in the 60s. He might have been a degrowther today, you know, that sort of thing. But it, but but instead, what he said was not any of those things. What he said was, we need to solve the problem by creating synthetic fertilizer. And he called on the chemists of the world. He said, here is the grand challenge being put to you. Go figure out how to make synthetic fertilizer. And he had some high-level ideas about how it could be done through using nitrogen in the atmosphere, which is exactly what happened. And he had a he had an idea that we could do it using electricity, which is not how it ended up happening. But you know. So he had a program and he said, like, let's go out and do this. So that is descriptive pessimism meeting with prescriptive optimism. And in my my editorial for MIT Tech Review, I call that solutionism, right? Where you acknowledge the reality of solutions, but you also, you know, believe in our agency to address those. Sorry, you acknowledge the reality of problems, but you also believe in our agency to step up and address those problems and ultimately to find solutions.
0: Got it. So with with that as, I guess, a bit of a background, why don't we do our best to like start broad and, and, and go deep here, right? So at risk of, I guess, discounting like the scope of what we're actually talking about here, I'd love to ask you like the the elevator pitch, the cocktail party pitch, whatever, whatever you want to call it, of when someone comes up to you and sort of asks you about your work and asks you the simple question of, so how did we create such a great standard of living over the last couple hundred years? What would you distill that down to?
1: That's tough because there are so many you know factors that go into it. And you know I don't yet have the grand unified theory of human progress. I'm still working on that one. The most the the key thing I've sort of learned, I would say that i'm that i'm that I'm confident in, is that progress compounds. It grows on itself and pro- progress feeds progress. And so you get these kind of you get this kind of flywheel effect where there's a lot of inertia to it. It's very hard to get the first turn of the flywheel going, but then the more it goes, the more inertia is helping you and the faster and faster you can turn it. And this is why what we see over the long term in terms of economic growth, is not only exponential you know, growth, but actually super exponential. As in, it's like an exponential curve, except the rate, the, the exponential, like the, the exponent, the growth rate actually increases over time. So overall, it grows faster than any exponential curve with a constant growth rate. And this is because there are all of these sort of positive feedback loops, all these, these compounding, all this compounding growth. Science and technology obviously have a sort of reciprocal reinforcing relationship. The more technolo- you know, the more science we have, the more fund- foundation we have for technology, the more technology we have, the better we can do science. And so those, those contribute to each other. Technology also allows us to create more and better technology. Um, when we created pre- uh, machine tools, we could do precision manufacturing, and that allowed us to make all all sorts of new machines including better machine tools right transportation and information technologies create large markets which support a much more specialized product right and new types of inventions communication technologies also just allow everybody to to share information much faster and more efficiently which speeds up all human activity it speeds up science technology business social change etc and then you know the deepest oh so there's, there's economic feedback loops as well so like as we accumulate wealth, we then have more surplus wealth to plow into R&D, which all then further increases the growth rate and allows us to accumulate still more wealth. Same thing with the, the, the building out of infrastructure, etc. The, so there's all these feedback loops at different levels and the deep, at the deepest level, I think the feedback loop goes all the way to very fundamental philosophical ideas like the very idea of progress itself, which is not a sort of natural idea. It's not one we've always had. It's a fairly recent idea in history, in fact. But the very idea that progress is possible and desirable is something that in part comes from progress itself and then feeds back into it. When people believe in progress, they are going to invest more of their time and energy and resources and and human capital into it. And when that happens, we get more progress. And then, so that's a a self-reinforcing feedback loop as well.
0: I think a cool thing to sort of dig into here that draws from a bit of what you were talking about with prescriptive optimism and draws from a bit of the synthetic fertilizer would be just this this idea of these step functions in technology taking place. I think the way I've heard you describe it is these like overlapping S-curves of adoption across broader cycles of technology. How do you break that down?
1: So the S-curve idea is that there is a curve that starts out growing very slowly, then ramps up and so bends upwards but then once it hits approaches a certain level it starts to level off right it starts to plateau and and so you get this curve that it looks a little bit like a like an, an elongated s that's been stretched out and lots of curves look like this but so but in in particular you know you see this with technologies where in the beginning a technology is very new and it doesn't have a lot of adoption and it's not growing very fast yet maybe it's not even you know very affordable yet or it's just not very well known and then it hits some inflection point where maybe it hits some crucial cost point or quality or reliability point, and and it starts really taking off, and the growth is very strong, and then adoption grows, you know, very fast. Or or you know, it's not necessarily just an adoption curve; it can be something else in terms of how much the technology gets improved. You know, how how fast it grows along some key metric of performance or quality. And then at a certain point, you've kind of you've kind of exhausted what you can do with whatever breakthrough led to the fast growth rate, and that's been milked for all it's worth, and it starts to it starts to mature and plateau and level off. Adoption curves of technologies look like this. I mean, obviously, once a once an adoption curve nears one hundred percent, it can't go past that. But also, I mean, you can you can just sort of look at various. I mean, you can look at also just like how much you know how much a, like business opportunity is there. In in something right in the electricity industry, like there's a lot of opportunity to sort of build out the electric power grid in the early 20th century, and then you know eventually that sort of approaches near 100% adoption in some country, and there you know it's just that all that investment levels off. So so virtually all ideas, you know, technological ideas or inventions or breakthroughs or whatever go through some sort of curve like this, where they 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 grow and then they and then they level off, and so. Where do we get? But but if you step back and you look at, say, you know GDP per capita growth or something, that doesn't look like something that's leveling off. It looks like something that is, you know, that's growing. It grows pretty strongly. Certainly in the U.S., GDP per capita, you know, until until recent decades, grew pretty strongly at you know a few percent per year for like 100, 150 years. So where does that come from if individual technologies kind of level off much more quickly than that? Well, what happens is we overlay or overlap a bunch of the S-curves, right? So like as one is technology is starting to plateau, some of the most innovative people are already moving on to the next technology. And so if you look at all of the technologies and all of the inventions and all of the business models, et cetera, in the economy, and you layer those S-curves on top of one another and overlap them, what you get is something that grows, you know, pretty strongly and consistently over a very long period of time.
0: Something interesting you said there was looking at it from like a business opportunity perspective. And I think this is sort of a a neat way to tie in this question of like talent distribution, right? So not just from a perspective of, oh, it's really difficult to compete with like these sort of massive incumbents, but also from a perspective of, I guess, larger sentiment about certain technologies over these broader cycles. So something I think I've heard from you is talking about these factors following World War II that started this sort of anti-tech sentiment, at least in the US a little bit, giving examples like, you know, the atomic bomb, these sort of more unfounded fears around nuclear power and and stuff like that. Do you see that continuing? Is that something that you you still worry about? Do you see the tides shifting at all?
1: Yeah, I think we are. I mean, I think in the world today, uh, certainly in the West at least, we are very conflicted about technology. There are a lot of things people love about technology. You know, people love their iPhones and and so forth, but there are all, there's also a lot of fear and skepticism and distrust, right? People are afraid that fossil fuels are destroying the planet. They're afraid that, you know, processed foods are causing obesity and destroying our health. They're afraid that social media is sapping our attention and making us, I don't know, depressed and lonely and and maybe destroying democracy, etc. And so there's, I think, a lot of this anti-progress sentiment that really arose in the U.S. around the 60s and 70s. I think a lot of that is is still with us and still affecting us.
0: Gotcha. So it, it, it certainly seems to be the case that progress is not automatic, right? You know, it, it's unfortunately like people have to make stuff for there to be new stuff. So to, I guess, begin a new route into this question of stagnation in another sort of attempt to try and distill this down why does stagnation occur
1: so usually when we chat about this in the progress community we're talking about the the stagnation of the last 50 years or so there have been you know there have been even there have been much bigger and more dramatic periods of stagnation in the past right there's been in, in over the long term of history, there have been periods of civilizational collapse and those happen for a variety of reasons. But more recently we talk about sort of technological and economic stagnation at least in the US and other frontier countries in the West over the last 50 years or so. And to be clear, we're not talking about a period of zero progress. There's been a lot of progress in the last 50 years. In fact, I would say that you know rates of growth or rates of progress are actually still higher. Over the last fifty years, than at any time before the Industrial Revolution. Yet, I think they are also noto- notably—it's notably slower growth than, in say, the you know the the early twentieth century or around there. And the thing that kind of convinced me of this was looking at—I mean, you can look at you can look at at quantitative figures like GDP growth or there's a there's a, a metric called total factor productivity and so forth. You you know, you can look at these and you can get a certain picture that way. But but on top of that, what really convinced me was just kind of looking qualitatively at you know what are sometimes called macro inventions or general purpose technologies, looking at what are some of the big breakthroughs in different fields and just kind of lining up when they happened. And if you look at the period from, say, 1870 to 1920, kind of a 50-year period, and you basically had about five major technological revolutions going on across all areas of technology. So you had the entire electrical industry essentially invented in that time, including the light bulb generator and the motor, the electric motor. You had also the internal combustion engine and the automobile and the airplane are all invented during that time. You had in, in communications technology, you had the telephone and the, the wireless telegraph and the very first radio. You had in in materials and, and sort of chemistry, you had a, a bunch of major things in applied chemistry, including synthetic fertilizer and synthetic plastics. And then in public health, you had the ger- the creation of the germ theory, the establishment of, of that theory and its applications to things like water sanitation and vaccine creation and just general like public health education about hygiene. And and all of that started to really seriously decrease mortality rates from infectious disease for the first time. So that's five major things going on across the entire economy. What comparable things happened in the same period 100 years later, 1970 to 2020? Well, we had a similar revolution in computers and the internet. And that's about it in terms of actual applications that made it to practice you i you could maybe throw in something there for genetic engineering although that feels like it's it's just dramatically under underfulfilled its potential so far right most of the potential of genetic engineering feels like it's in the in the future but you know manufacturing construction transportation energy didn't really see any fundamental new breakthroughs. We're still more or less doing those in in kind of fundamentally the same way. You know, we we almost got a revolution in nuclear power, but that basically didn't happen, and nuclear is only sort of plateaued at about 10% of world electricity usage. We got, we were still flying on the same, basically the same kind of like jet, you know, airplanes that we were flying on in the sixties. We briefly got some supersonic passenger transport, the Concorde, but it was never affordable. It was always for the rich only. And then it stopped running. So we don't even have that anymore, etc. So, you know, there were sort of all these things that could have happened or might've happened. And, and all these areas where we just, just not, just didn't see any fundamental breakthroughs for, for that whole period. And so it was kind of comparing those things qualitatively that made me realize like no matter how amazing computers and the internet are and, and yes, they are they're very amazing and they're, and that's a huge revolution. It just I just don't think that that one revolution in one field can stack up to essentially five, you know roughly equivalently sized, revolutions across the board. Like you could look at, you know, the internet on the one hand and compare it to say telephone plus radio. And you could have an argument about which of those is bigger, right? Which of those was a bigger deal. But I don't think that you can, you can stack up the internet versus that and all the other four things that I mentioned, you know, electrical power and, and internal combustion and, and chemistry and germ theory and say, oh yeah, the internet was bigger than like all of those put together. I just don't buy it.
0: That in mind, I guess speaking preventatively with regard to stagnation, or I guess let's say if you had a huge billboard, if you had everyone's attention, if you were at the helm, what would you be doing to reverse or or sort of prevent further cycles like this?
1: yeah so i guess you actually asked for my hypotheses earlier about kind of what caused stagnation i spent i spent all my time explaining what it was so let me actually answer that part because it it feeds directly into to the answer to that question of what would you do i have three sort of major hypotheses for where stagnation has come from not mutually exclusive in fact I think they all go together so one is the burden of regulation we've built up a a regulatory state over the last several decades um, and in particular, it's, it's become a vitocracy, as in we have put, it, it's not just what the regulatory agencies say you can or can't do. It's also that we have given a lot of legal and, and a procedural power to essentially anyone who wants to slow down or stop development from happening and so between the the sort of activist obstructionist citizenry they tend to be a minority of the citizenry but but have this kind of outsized power cuz they're willing to come in and, and, and wield it and you know between them and the and the regulatory agencies it's just it's just become very hard to to build anything I and mean, we can't even build housing in in this country anymore we can't build transit we can't build you know new you know energy projects even you know supposedly you know green and environmentally friendly ones get get delayed or or uh, obstructed or shot down, sometimes by environmental regulation itself, right? Some people have actually said that at this point, environmental regulation is one of the biggest barriers to environmental progress, which is, I don't know. So that's one. My second hypothesis is the centralization and bureaucratization of funding for, for research and development, especially for basic scientific research. A lot of funding, especially for basic science, has gotten consolidated over the last 75 years or so since World War II under a small number of large federal agencies. And anytime you have consolidation and centralization in funding for any kind of, of innovation, right? Anything where you are facing unknown unknowns and have to, have to you know, tr- try unproven ideas. Anytime you have like one funder dominating that landscape, I think you're, you're going to have problems because any one funder, no matter how well run they are, is going to have blind spots. And then on top of that, you know, the agencies that we have like NIH and NSF tend to give out money in grants that are based on, that are that are, that are are given out through this kind of committee-based peer review process, which really just sort of lends itself to consensus and groupthink and not the kind of, you know, challenging of the status quo that we need in an endeavor like science. And then number three, my third sort of major hypothesis is just the decline in, in belief in progress itself. So going back to something I said earlier, you know, in order to make progress, we fundamentally have to believe that it is possible and desirable, and to the extent that we do or don't, I think that really affects flows of 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 money and talent and energy and you know ultimately where where people want to invest their time in themselves, and so I think this this major sort of skepticism of progress questioning of the very idea of progress that has arisen that arose in the 20th century i think ultimately is now paying those sort of negative dividends and you know and making it and just just you know fewer resources and fewer brains and everything kind of going into it
0: so sort of a two part i'll actually break it up okay so two questions and and mostly related to that first one with regard to bureaucracy and regulation the first question is sort of trying to frame preparedness for maybe more black swan events, right? For instance, the COVID pandemic, I think everybody sort of points to or had been pointing to Bill Gates' like TED Talk on being prepared for a global pandemic some years before the COVID pandemic even hit. When it comes to being prepared for events that, you know, incentives wise nobody is is necessarily being pushed to prepare for do you see bureaucracy and regulation taking like a necessary role in that or are you more just hands off regulation
1: so first off we should distinguish between sort of regulation and government more broadly right not everything that government does is regulation so, so, you, so, so one question. There's a question, maybe around, you know, is re, is regulation relevant to prevent pandemics? But there's a different question of sort of like, does the government have a role in preventing pandemics? I mean, when I think about what regulation might be relevant to pandemics, that's not really obvious unless it's sort of regulation of like bio research and bio labs and enforcing some safety procedures there. That's really to prevent like, you know, accidental man made pandemics, essentially. But I think what's probable, and, and you know, I, I certainly think something along those lines makes sense. If you're running a bio lab, you really should be adhering to certain safety, you know, protocols. And I think we probably do need the force of regulation to, uh, of the force of law and government to to enforce that. Uh, But in terms of what is actually going to matter for pandemic preparedness and 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 dealing with them. I mean I think it's actually much more a matter of things like having rapid vaccine development platforms and you know maybe having better sort of testing capacity, maybe having things like wastewater monitoring, you know, b- better early warning systems. And I, I don't know, I don't have a lot to say right now on sort of like what is the I mean okay, Like right now, the fact is we sort of, we do depend on the government for a lot of this stuff. We depend on them essentially to stockpile vaccines for known, you know, already developed vaccines for known diseases. We depend on them to do a lot of, you know, to fund a lot of the research into improving, you know, things like this obviously we would i think i think you know if we were going to end up doing you know wastewater or waste, wastewater monitoring systems that almost certainly seems like something that you know the government would end up running so i think just de facto we do depend on the government today for for those things i mean as to i, I don't know do, do we have to and would it be better if we didn't i don't have opinions on that that I feel that I can defend very strongly right now. I tend to be pretty laissez-faire. And so I tend to look for ways that we don't have to depend on the government for things. I can imagine, I can dream up a world where our medical system works very, very differently from the way it does today. And health insurance almost means something different from what it does today. And I could see like... A world in which maybe you know insurance companies were actually the ones like taking the lead on things like pandemic preparedness because they were like they'd be like financially on the hook if you know if if there were one. But that's again, I'd be dreaming up a scenario very different, you know, from from the way it is today. I will note by the way that like from what I can tell, one of the actual leading organizations in pandemic preparedness is CEPI, C-E-P-I the I'll figure what it stands for, Coalition for Epidemic. Preparedness, something, something, CEPI. Anyway, they they've been funding rapid vaccine development platforms, and there are governments involved in that. But it's but the Gates Foundation is also involved, and other private donors. And so I think we might actually depend more on sort of you know visionary philanthropists like Gates and others who've been thinking about this problem since well before COVID. You know, for for projects like that,
0: makes sense. Second part of that question is I guess a bit more of a creative one. Again, if you had you know, the biggest billboard in the same way that we could be talking about that call for pandemic preparedness back in 2013, 14, whatever it was, what would you be shouting from the rooftops today? Mm.
1: Well, I mean, there is a, you know, there is a central message that I want to get out to people. I don't know if it, I don't think it fits well on a billboard and I don't think that's the, the best way to do it. But to, to take that as a metaphor rather than too literally, you know, my, my core message is look, progress is real. It is important. It is possible and desirable to continue improving human life and the human condition, but it is not automatic or inevitable. And we need to sort of pay attention and, and take charge of it. And fundamentally, the, the, the view, the, the worldview, and the view of progress that, that I want to communicate is one that is fundamentally humanistic that is, human life and human well being are. The ultimate goal and sort of the core standard of value of you know how we judge what what is progress and, and is material progress even a good thing. And two that concept of agency, you know, that we talked about before, or or you maybe you could call it that prescriptive optimism that says that, you know, we can shape the future and our actions matter. Progress is ultimately a product of choice and effort on our part. And so, you know, let's decide what kind of future we want to live in and let's believe that we can actually make it happen and let's go out there and build it.
0: Another fun question, you know, in in sort of drawing these comparisons in technology across history over time, would you consider yourself as, I guess, being in the business of is sort of the wrong way of phrasing this, but of making predictions from history do you think that this sort of i'm forgetting the term it's like cliodynamics or something that this this history as science this sort of concept do you do you buy into that at all
1: I'm very skeptical of, you know, people who think that they see these like cyclical trends and that you can just predict that here's what's going to happen. And, you know, on kind of like this time scale. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't. I mean, I don't. I, I don't. I don't make a lot of predictions myself. I think making predictions is very difficult and it's like actually a pretty specialized skill. And if you want to make good predictions about something, you kind of have to often like really dig into it and, and do some research. So I tend not to make predictions or, you know, not, not too many of them. I, yeah, I think predictions are hard, but I definitely don't think you can just sort of predict this uh, like cyclical pattern that will unfold just like it always has. Any any patterns that are in human history are not are not that simple and they're not at that like basic a level.
0: I think something to start wrapping us up here would be just this idea of innovation and different ways that you can frame that, right? So I think the the pretty standard across a lot of spheres anyway idea here is this linear model of innovation, right? Like this this basic research and science leading to technological innovation that can sort of be commoditized down the line. I've 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 heard you be a little bit critical of that. Would love to hear you speak to it.
1: Yeah, so there's this notion of a linear model of innovation, and there there's no one canonical version of it. You can I usually just sort of give it as like like phase one science, phase two invention, you know, phase three is like distribution or, it, It's kind of always been a straw man. I don't think anybody has ever really seriously advocated that this is literally and 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 simply the way that innovation happens that it always goes in this kind of linear pipeline like this. I think there is a grain of truth in it in that science does provide a foundation for invention and an invention does you know then give you something that you can build a business around or otherwise you know uh, scale and distribute um but the mistake in the linear models if you if you have too naive of a view of it then you might think that there's just sort of a a clean handoff from one stage to the next like first science comes up with some stuff and it discovers some laws and then it just sort of throws the laws over the transom to the the engineers and the inventors who then just kind of do a straightforward deductive application of, you know, physical law in order to create an invention and then you know, and then once they're totally done with the invention, maybe they hand it off to some business people who then go. Anyway, none of that is how it works. The relationships between the 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 sort of different st- activities are much more reciprocal. There's much more of a back and forth. There's a lot of feedback up and down the pipeline. And and to really make progress, I think sometimes you actually have to operate at the intersection or the or the overlap. Right. Some some of the some of the greatest inventions or discoveries have come from people who were very comfortable rapidly shuttling back and forth between science and invention, between trying to figure out how the world works and then tinkering to you know to actually like make an invention. And so I think that we just, yeah, we shouldn't think of there being too much of a linear one-way relationship. I think we shouldn't think of these as being like highly separate or there being a clean handoff between them. We should think of there being a lot of reciprocal, a, a lot of feedback, a lot of influence in both directions and, and a lot of cycling back and forth at the boundary. And so I think, you know, maybe one other hypothesis of stagnation today. Is that we've made more of a separation between these things than there used to be in the past. It used to be totally cool for scientists to also spend time on invention. And today I feel like if you're an academic scientist and you want to optimize your career, you need to be optimizing like your, your publications and your citation count and you know that sort of thing. And you don't really, you know, academic credit for 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 just making stuff work, which is kind of the essence of invention. Once you come up with some basic, you know, idea that contributes maybe. maybe you do a proof of concept, right? But once you've contributed to human knowledge that way, there's this, you know, anything that isn't seen as like contributing to the state to to science is not something you really get credit for. And so there's a whole ton of work to just like make an invention actually practical and make it reliable and make it cost effective and so forth. And yeah, scientists don't get credit for that stuff and they don't do as much
0: of it anymore. So That's not something I've heard before, it's a really cool concept, almost like this, this idea of like specialization, not of like subject matter, but of, of activity of labor almost in, in academic fields is actually like a net detriment to the space as a whole.
1: I, I think so. I, I have a hunch that that's the case. Specialization in fields, of course, is probably necessary, just as as knowledge grows and becomes deeper and broader. At least to some extent, I think specialization is necessary. But yeah, but specialization in sort of you know scientists only do science and and they kind of can't you know you just can't afford to spend any of your time on invention or else you you're you're not optimizing your career path. I I, I often think that that's that that's problematic.
0: So. Jason, I've got one question. I have sort of come to be routinely asking as a last question in any of these conversations, and it's it's pretty simply, you know, inside or outside of the scope. I I find that outside sort of tends to be more interesting. But inside or outside of the scope of the conversation we've had, what is something you think more people should be paying attention to?
1: I think more people should be paying attention to the world around them and their everyday life, and thinking about what actually makes that possible and where it came from I think most people you know you know we sort of get up on kind of a you know wake up in like a nice soft bed and you go take a hot shower under running water and you get milk and eggs and 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 orange juice out of the refrigerator and then you hop on a train or a car to work and you take an elevator up 40 floors and you know sit behind a plate glass window in an air conditioned room and and you know type on a computer for your living while you you know look out at the at the cityscape and none of that stuff existed 200 years ago and people take it for granted and they go through a life like that every day using dozens of inventions and 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 developments that make their lives better and they never stop to give to for a moment of awe or wonder, or a moment of gratitude for the people who who created that and made it possible for them, and 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 who brought that to them. And they never stop to think about sort of what's underlying that, all of the infrastructure, all of the kind of the the things behind the curtain, you know, that keep their world going, the factories and the power plants and the cargo ships and the rail lines and the, and the cranes and the, you know, computer networks and the satellites and all of that stuff. And I think people should just, should just think about that, you know, more often, and they should be aware of what an amazing world, you know, truly amazing world we live in and, and just stop and have a little more awe and wonder and, and, and gratitude for that.
0: That's all I've got for you, Jason. Thank you so much for doing this. I, I had a great time.
1: Thanks. Really appreciate it. And yeah, a good conversation. Thanks for having me on.